you have your Bibles and would like to follow along in our scripture reading, I invite you to turn with me to Micah chapter 7 and we'll be considering today verses 8 through 10. Micah 7 verses 8 through 10. Here we read God's words through the prophet Micah. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. In the cause of Christ, it is very tempting to judge the progress of Christ's kingdom by comparing it with the apparent success of Satan's kingdom. We are tempted to contrast the increase of unfaithful churches with the decrease of faithful churches and to fret ourselves that we have been forsaken by God or that we are are in the wrong camp or that we have invested our lives in a losing cause or that we have no hope of victory against such mighty adversaries to the cause of Christ, the side of heaven. Of course, we can always count on giving way in fear to such temptations when our eyes are more focused on the seeming advance of the enemy than upon the promised victory of Jesus Christ. For the Lord does appear to allow his enemies to make great strides in seeing their wicked designs and schemes realized. God does so in order to teach us to look not in fear at the enemy, but rather to look with confidence to Christ. Just as you recall, Elisha, the prophet, being surrounded by the Syrian army in the small town of Dothan, taught his own servant who saw when he woke up early in the morning the forces that surrounded the entire city and the Lord taught this servant through the words of Elisha to not look at the enemies that surround you but to look and to have his eyes open so that he could see the mighty host, the angelic host that filled the mountains all around him. 
who far outnumbered the Syrian army. You see, there was the Lord also amasses the enemy together as a mighty force against his little flock so as to make the fall of the enemy that more conspicuous for all to see. As we read in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, with regard to Pharaoh. The Apostle Paul says, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Dear ones, the Lord calls us this day not to fret ourselves, because of the success of evildoers, but rather to rejoice in the Lord of hosts for our victory. Our victory is not in question. Our victory is certain. And this is the substance of the message from the Lord to his people in Micah chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. There are three truths from our text that the faithful remnant of Israel is called to believe and profess when it appears that they have been overwhelmed by their enemy. The first truth is this. I shall arise. I shall arise in Micah 7, 8. The second truth that they are to believe and to profess is this. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Micah 7, 9. And the third truth is this. He will plead my cause. That is, the Lord will plead my cause. In Micah 7, verses 9 and 10. Let us consider then the very first main point. I shall arise. Look with me at Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. This is the first truth that God's faithful remnant should believe and profess when they are surrounded by their enemies. I shall arise. That should be on our tongues too. I shall arise. Though I fall, I shall arise by God's grace. You will recall that the, the cry of the faithful remnant of Israel. We see in Micah 7 2, this is the, the cry of the faithful remnant of Israel. They say, the good man is perished out of the earth. That is, the faithful remnant of God's people are so outnumbered, it seems, by those who are unfaithful, that it is difficult to find one who seeks to follow the Lord with all of his heart. Where are they? Where have they gone? I feel all alone in standing for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, it is easy to follow 
the multitude to do evil when the unfaithful are so numerous. But in such times, the Lord calls his faithful remnant to look away from the multitudes of those who follow an unfaithful path and to follow Christ with the faithful remnant, as small as they may be, as few as they may be, to follow Christ in that faithful remnant. It is not the broad way. It is not the broad gate. It is the narrow path and the narrow gate that leads to everlasting life. And to follow Christ, even, dear ones, when loved ones are among those who have strayed from the paths of faithfulness and truth. Look what Micah says in chapter 7, verses 5-7. through seven. Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So we are encouraged by the prophets, by the word of the Lord, to turn away from the multitudes, even to turn away from those who are closest to us if they do not walk that narrow path. Not to follow them in walking the broad path, but to say, this is the word of the Lord to me. I shall arise and I will walk that narrow path to everlasting life. Now, beginning in Micah 7, 8, chapter 7, verse 8, the prophet begins his concluding remarks to the faithful remnant of Israel. This final section of the prophecy of Micah is filled with much consolation and with promises of restoration and victory for God's people. The prophet speaks on behalf of the faithful remnant when he uses the word I, as he does here, I shall arise. He's not simply speaking of himself. He is speaking on behalf of all of the faithful, those who stand with him. And he speaks directly to the various enemies of the Lord, both outside Israel, that is, at that time, to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians and to all the hostile civil governments of the world who hate the kingdom of Christ and seek to suppress it and to destroy it. And the prophet speaks on behalf of the faithful remnant to those enemies who work from within Israel as well, like the unfaithful of Israel who by their hypocrisy, toleration of sin and error, backsliding from truth and doctrine, worship and church government have brought God's judgment upon them. The faithful of Israel declare with confidence in the Lord Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. In other words, the faithful remnant of the Lord are taught herein to declare those of you who have taunted, maligned, hindered, oppressed, 
persecuted the faithful and standing for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a time for you to throw a party when the hands of the Lord are upon his remnant and his remnant are reduced in size and when their testimony for the truth appears to be silence, it's not a time for you to throw a party. Dear ones, when the Lord brings his discipline upon us and allows our enemies to overtake us for a time, whether our enemy be a besetting sin that we have, whether that enemy be unfaithful shepherds, whether that enemy be defection from our covenanted obligations or division and schism within Christ's body or toleration of sin and error or tyrannical civil magistrates, we are at such times tempted to throw up our arms in defeat. If we can't beat them, let's just join them. We're tempted to do so. We're tempted to murmur against the Lord. The Lord has forgotten his promises made to us. We're tempted to declare that the truth requires too much of a sacrifice of us. I don't have the strength to take another step. It's just not in me. I can't go any further. We're tempted in all of these ways. But Micah, God's prophet, gives to the faithful remnant this first truth to cling to with all of our heart and to profess with our mouths. When I fall, I shall arise. Micah 7, 8. Here is the confidence that we have in Christ. Although you may fall before your enemies and even appear to be dead, never to rise again, yet the Lord, who not only can lift up those fallen, but also raises up those who are dead will by his grace and by his power cause you to triumph over his and your enemies as you patiently wait upon him and trust in him. He will give you victory. To the same effect are the words that follow in Micah 7, 8. And Micah says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. What a blessed joy in the Lord is ours. What a peace that passes all understanding is ours when we know and confidently rest in the promise that although the faithful remnant may fall and decrease in numbers to almost nothing, nevertheless, they will arise again in God's good time. Dear ones, the cause of Jesus Christ, which we promote and defend, cannot, cannot lose. Although the faithful and biblical covenants of our forefathers be buried and trampled underfoot today, yet will they be raised as a banner to assemble his people together as one. Consider the following illustrations of this biblical principle. First, the faithful remnant of Israel appeared to fall never to rise again. When they were led into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but the Lord caused them to rise again and sent them forth from captivity into the land of Palestine 
to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord. This was like a rising from the dead to Israel. Second, the faithful remnant of Israel again appeared to fall when their numbers were so depleted that the vast majority of Israel fell away from their God and even approved of Christ's crucifixion and persecuted the apostles of Jesus Christ. Yet the Apostle Paul tells us that the faithful remnant of Israel will arise from the dead and become a mighty host when all of Israel is saved at the time of the millennium in Romans chapter 11. Verses 11 and 12. The faithful remnant, thirdly, the faithful remnant of the church could hardly be seen when swallowed up within the captivity of the Romish church. But by the grace and power of Christ, the Protestant reformers of the first and second reformations arose from the ashes to continue the battle against all anti-Christian oppression in church and in state. Fourthly, the faithful remnant, which are identified as two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, bear testimony against the corruption and tyranny in church and state for 1260 prophetic days or 1260 actual years and are slain and lie in that condition, according to Revelation 11, for three and a half prophetic days, or three and a half actual years. This speaks of the death and persecution of the faithful remnant, which is yet to come. A time when the faithful testimony of the truth of Christ will become so hated that the world will seek to silence that testimony once and for all. There will even be a worldwide celebration rejoicing over the fall of the faithful remnant, Revelation chapter 11 teaches. But the Lord omnipotent will raise his faithful remnant from the dust of the grave by putting their testimony for the truth into the mouths and into the hearts of a new generation of faithful witnesses by whose testimony the nations of the world will arise and stand up for the crown rights of Jesus Christ. That is yet to come. But it will happen, even as the Lord in history has shown us how he can take nations and churches and raise them up from the dead to become mighty. Therefore, dear ones, when you appear to have fallen before your enemy... Remember the promise of the Lord in Micah 7, 8. When I fall, I shall arise. Or the promise that's found in Proverbs 24, verse 16. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Or the promise that's found in Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Yes, the church collectively or Christians individually may fall seven times. 
that is many times, into certain sins, but the Lord will, by his grace, raise us up to renew our faith in Christ, to sorrow and to grieve over the sin that we have committed against him, and to seek his forgiveness, ever rejoicing in the faithfulness of our God and of our Savior. Are you in that fallen condition today? Are you overwhelmed by the enemies of your soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil? Take hold of this promise from Christ today. I shall arise. Even as the enemy could not keep Christ under the power of death, so the enemy cannot keep you who trust in Christ under the power of sin. For Christ will deliver you. But dear ones, if we would know victory in our life over the enemies of our soul, we must be willing to forsake all those means by which we are tempted and drawn into those sins. We must learn to not only hate sin, but to even hate that temptation that leads us into that sin. We must avoid that which leads us into temptation. For we are never really serious about victory over sin until we are serious about fleeing the temptations which lead us into that sin. The battle over our besetting sins is won in fleeing the temptations that lead us into that sin. If we flirt with the temptation to sin, we will eventually be overcome by the sin itself. What are the occasions to sin which lead you into various besetting sins? For example, when you don't get the response that you want from your spouse, do you have a tendency to become angry? Do you retaliate when your spouse is angry with you? Do you retaliate and angry to him or to her? How do you set aside, therefore, that temptation which leads you into the sin of anger? How do you overcome that temptation to become angry in such situations? It may be your spouse, it may be a co-worker, it may be a friend, it may be anyone else. But the Word of God teaches that we're not to reciprocate in kind or in manner as we are treated. We're not to render evil for evil, but good for evil. And so we're not to retaliate, we're not to be vengeful. We're not to lash out even if we are mistreated. I suggest that some ways in which we can remove the occasion to sin, sinful anger in such cases, would be to take some very positive steps. If we simply wait to the moment at which that happens. And this could be any sin into which we fall. But if we simply wait until the moment to seek to overcome sins, when we are in the throes and uh, in the very presence of that sin, 
that sin is much more likely to overwhelm us. With regard to this particular type of a sin of anger, when you do not get the response that you want to receive from someone else, whether it's your spouse or anyone else, learn to set your expectations, first of all, so that your anger is not controlled by the response you receive from others. Learn to be a thermostat that controls the temperature of a room rather than a thermometer that simply responds to the temperature within the room. Are you a thermostat or are you a thermometer? You see, we don't have to respond in the way in which we are spoken to. We do not have to respond in like manner. We can respond differently by God's grace. That's not to say that the response of the other person is unimportant. It's not to, to say, well, that response that has been given to me uh, is nothing that I will ever bring up or never mention to that person. It's simply to say your first, I would suggest your first and most important duty is to focus on your response. How are you going to respond in such a situation? Not how did they respond, but how are you now going to respond? If you're going to respond in this, I would suggest, right manner, you're going to focus on your own duties, first of all. And what are your duties? Well, your duties are to exercise self-control, not to just let it all hang out. Your duty is to learn to be slow to speak and quick to hear. Your duty is to learn to take a walk or count to ten or bite your tongue rather than lashing out. Your duty is to learn to cast, even in that moment, all of your care upon the Lord and to cast all your care upon the Lord even before you find yourself in that situation, if that is a besetting sin. If you've fallen into that sin many times, you're prepared. you should be prepared before that sin arrives. You know how you've responded in the past. Prepare yourself before that comes your way. Your duty is to show love to others. To show love to others even when you do not hear what you want to hear. That's your duty. Not to return evil for evil, but good for evil. Your duty is to learn to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Your duty is to learn to be patient with others as Christ has been patient with you. Your duty is to learn to pray for others as Christ prays for you. Your duty is to learn to pity others when they fall into sin, recognizing but for the grace of God, so do I. Your duty is to learn to remove anything in your own life that may unnecessarily contribute to the response that others have given to you. 
Your duty is to learn to be thankful to the Lord for his forgiveness of your sin. Your duty is to learn to encourage those who may even speak evil of you or against you. Your duty is to learn to to encourage them in any way that you possibly can in the things that they do good, that are right, and that are commendable and honorable. To try to encourage them. Your duty is to pray for God's grace and, and prepare yourself in advance so that you do not even put yourself unnecessarily into any situation wherein you might fall into that besetting sin. Don't take a passive approach to sin. Take a, an active and a proactive approach to sin. Don't be the victim be the overcomer in the way you approach sin in your life. Don't lie in the dust. Let flow from your lips, I shall arise. The second main point is I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Micah chapter 7 verse 9 says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. The second truth that God's faithful remnant are called to believe and confess when their enemies overwhelm them is this. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Dear ones, the faithful in Israel are taught that when God brings his righteous judgment upon them as a nation, It is a time for self-examination rather than a time for self-exaltation. This was certainly true in Micah's time as Israel faced God's judgment upon them through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It will also be true before that future restoration of Israel as well in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where we read, God saying, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The Lord will bring upon them great humiliation, mourning and grieving. So, when God brings this judgment into our lives, this discipline into our lives, it's a time for self-examination. Have we offended the Lord? Have we offended our brethren? Dear ones, when we are brought low by some besetting sin, by some physical trial in our body, by some financial setback, by some division in our family, by some division within the church of Jesus Christ, by the loss of a loved one, it is a time for us to be humbled before the Lord. It is not a time for self-righteousness, wherein we see no fault nor cause at all for God's discipline in our lives, as if we were sinless. Nor is it a time for, on the other hand, nor is it a time for hopelessness and despair. It is not a time for self-pity as if we were utterly abandoned by the Lord. 
It is not a time for murmuring and complaining against the rod of God's discipline. It is not a time to allow bitterness and resentment to destroy our lives. For rather, it is a time to proclaim the righteousness of the Lord in all that he does. In all that he does, that he is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. It is a time to kiss the loving rod of God's discipline. It is a time to grieve and sorrow over our own sins and errors. It is a time to renew our covenant with the Lord our God. It is a time for prayer and fasting, a time to be thankful for the many mercies of the Lord that we have enjoyed in the past, are enjoying in the present and shall enjoy in the future. It is a time to look to Christ alone as our only hope of eternal salvation, joy, peace, and contentment. When the hand of the Lord is heavy upon us, it is a time for such things. Here we see in Micah 7, 9 that the faithful remnant of Israel are called to patiently endure the time of God's just indignation brought upon them. Why? Why has that indignation been brought upon them? The next phrase tells us, because I have sinned against him. That is against the Lord. Even the faithful remnant of Israel, for whom Micah the prophet here speaks, must sincerely confess that they too have sinned against the Lord in various ways and that his discipline upon them is always just and righteous. Consider the prayer of Daniel as one of the faithful remnant of Israel. He does not exclude himself as, as being guilty of sin against the Lord, but includes himself among those who have sinned against the Lord, even if it might be to a lesser degree than some, he nevertheless includes himself in Daniel chapter nine, verses three and four. Listen to how Daniel phrases his prayer. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Verse 5. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from the, thy precepts and from thy judgments. And it goes on with regard to that rebellion. You see, there is no self-righteousness in this prayer. There is no murmuring against the Lord or against his providence. There's no resentment. There is no bitterness. There is no self-pity and feeling sorry for oneself. No, this prayer is filled with true humility. And there is, dear ones, no true humility where there is yet self-righteousness and self-justification before God for what we do and the sins we commit. But we do not truly humble ourselves before God. If we're not honest before God and before others, there is no humility in our hearts. 
Let me also note before moving on to our last main point that God's discipline does not always fall upon us by taking some material or physical blessing from us. Sometimes God's hand of discipline falls upon us by giving us exactly what we want. Sometimes God's discipline falls upon us and giving us the sinful desires of our own heart. This form of discipline upon God's people or judgment upon even God's enemies is in many ways, I would suggest, a more severe act of discipline or judgment than the former method where he takes things from us. For when God disciplines us by granting to us for a time continued material or physical prosperity while we yet continue in our sin and our rebellion against him, a hardness of heart, a callousness of heart develops over us and we continue in our sin and our rebellion against him, all the while justifying that sin and rebellion on the basis of the prosperity and the blessing that we are presently enjoying. How can we be under God's discipline? Look at what God is giving to us. Thus, dear ones, we must never judge the rightness of our cause merely by the presence or absence of material prosperity or merely by the presence or the absence of numerical gain. For it is possible to be deceived by such outward evidences. Consider the outward success of Rome. Consider the outward success of Islam. Consider the outward success of Mormonism, of many unfaithful denominations, feminism, humanism, and all the various isms that are contrary to the word of God. Consider how they prosper. It is not might nor size that makes right. It is the truth of Jesus Christ alone that makes right. And therein we must stand, whether there be prosperity or whether there be trial. Our third and final point is this. He will plead my cause. Micah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is thy God? Or where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. In these words of the prophet and the faithful remnant, we hear the final truth that we are to believe and profess when we are overwhelmed by our enemies. He will plead my cause. Even if there is no one else to plead your cause, even if you seem to stand all by yourself, 
the Lord will plead your cause as you take up his cause. He will plead your cause. The Lord himself will take up the cause of the faithful remnant, which is really, as I said, is really his own cause. And he will vindicate them from all the unjust accusations, lies, and persecutions that have been brought against them for taking a stand for the Sabbath. If, they should, if any of the faithful should lose their jobs. If for standing for the truth, family members or friends may not want to associate as closely with that faithful remnant. If the civil magistrate may bring against the faithful remnant his various censures because we speak against that which is unlawful, against same-sex marriages. We speak against and condemn the type of religious toleration that is practiced within this nation but stand for the unity of Christ's church that there ought to be one true faithful church in each nation, not the many divisions that presently exist within this nation. The Lord will take up the cause of those who stand for his cause. He will bring forth the faithful out of darkness and into the light of the noonday sun for all to see the righteousness and faithfulness of the Lord in defending his people and in granting to them victory. Micah 7.10 tells us how the Lord will accomplish this. Those who have been adversaries to the faithful remnant will see with a clear understanding that the Lord defends and takes up the cause of his little flock of his little flock of faithful ones in history and then at that final judgment he will vindicate them as well. Those adversaries that do not turn to the Lord and take up the same cause for which the faithful remnant have been willing to suffer and to die will be trodden down as the mire of the streets now in history as well as on that final day Micah says what a precious truth is given to us in this concluding section. As we patiently wait upon the Lord, not giving way to self-righteousness nor to pride, not giving way to murmuring nor to complaining, not giving way to bitterness nor to resentment, not giving way to hopelessness nor to self-pity, the Lord will in his own time vindicate the truthfulness of the cause of the faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will expose the shameful lies of the adversary, the underhanded methods and tactics which they have used in, in persecuting and in scattering the faithful remnant and the hidden conspiracy of those who would lead the faithful astray. For ultimately the cause for which the faithful remnant stand is not their own cause but that of Christ, their Savior and Lord. The certainty in our hearts that we are promoting and defending the cause of Christ when we stand for the solemn league and covenant 
when we stand for the faithful contendings of the witnesses of Christ, when we stand for the covenanted reformation, when we stand for the purity of worship and singing only psalms without instrumental music and without the use of images like crosses or banners or without holy days such as Christmas or Easter, when we stand for the pure gospel of salvation that pours contempt upon all the pride of man and exalts alone the grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, certainty, certainty of that truth on our parts makes people very, very unhappy with us. They do not want to see us certain about truth. They want to see us wavering. They want to see us doubting. They want to see us disbelieving. They want to see us confused and perplexed because then the spotlight is taken off of their sin and error and focuses upon our wavering. But if we are certain about the truth for which we stand, those who oppose the truth become very fearful. They shake in their boots when they see a people who are confident and certain in the truth that they maintain. Because they don't have that certainty and they do not have that confidence. This certainty comes from the persuasion of the Holy Spirit alone in our lives. That conviction which God places in our hearts that that which we embrace is true. It is as true as Christ himself is. It is forever settled in the heavens. And so don't be surprised that your certainty of the truth makes people uneasy. For your certainty condemns their sin and their errors. The conviction of Christ's truth calls us not to fight using the carnal weapons of deceit, slander, misrepresentation, scheming, or plotting on our parts. Rather, we must always humbly Humbly speak the truth in love to those who oppose us. We do not have to shout and scream to get our message across. We do not have to be nasty. We do not have to be belligerent and hateful. We simply humbly speak the truth in love. The Lord takes the truth and applies it the hearts of those who will hear. We need never fret nor worry that we shall be utterly overcome by the adversary when our confidence is holy in the Lord. We need never lower ourselves to engage in their battle strategy. We need never lower our standards to their standards, to the standards of our adversaries. We continue to maintain our standards of righteousness regardless of what the world decides to do. 
And the Lord promises that as we do so, he will vindicate us. He will show forth our righteousness as the noonday sun. In Psalm 37, verse 6, we read, And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. That is what we see in the historical records of those who have faithfully contended for the truth. And ultimately, the cause for which we have suffered will be vindicated at the judgment seat of Christ. When all that is hidden, when all that is hidden will be shouted from the rooftops. All wrongs will be righted. All lies will be revealed. The truth of Jesus Christ alone will prevail. Never forget, dear ones, the Lord will plead your cause as your cause is his cause. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for building and establishing this faithful remnant to the cause of Christ. Give to us conviction of the truth, certainty, and thy word that has been revealed to us, and the truths that have been made known unto us. O Lord, we pray that thou would help us not to waver in the face of the multitudes or in the face of those even whom we love and cherish, who may and seek to lead us astray. But Lord, let our confidence be in the Lord our God. Let our hope be in Jesus Christ. Lord, when we fall, we shall arise. And Lord God, may we, under thy mighty hand, not exalt ourselves, but exalt the righteousness of Christ. And, O Lord our God, let us await the time when Thou wilt vindicate us. Let us patiently wait upon Thee, who will bring forth that which is right and true in Thine own time. We pray, Father, give us steadfastness of heart, perseverance in that which is true and right. Give to us joy that we may even, Lord, at this time rejoice in that which we suffer for Christ's sake, even as the prophets and the saints of old have found delight in thee and their suffering. May we learn to be able to delight in what we suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, we do ask that thou would would give to us thy spirit today in abundance that we might go forth and do thy pleasure, do thy will, to the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, 
in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.